0: We're going to be in the book of Ivrim, Ivrim, the book of Hebrews, and jump right into chapter one. Last week, um, I spent last week giving the introduction to the book of Ivrim, the book of Hebrews, and I wanted to really emphasize that as we get into the scripture and we go through chapter by chapter, I want us to remember the importance for us today of biblical revelation married with history because the whole reason the the new world order, the liberal agenda is being thrust and pushed forward and they're getting away with it is because people don't have a Bible foundation and a clue what happened yesterday. And the only way that we can protect ourselves is through Yahuwah through His divine protection, but we also have a responsibility to be in the Word and to know what happened beforehand, yesterday in history, so that we can be aware of what's going on today and that what will happen in the future. And that's the reason that they're able to get away with what they get away with because people are not in the word and they don't know what happened in the past. So we have to understand the culture, the text of the book of Hebrews and understand that these people, they were on the very precipice of losing their culture. They truly were. They were three or four years away from their culture literally being ripped right from them. There was civil war, there was oppressors, and there were people coming in, militants, that were waging war against the followers of Yahweh, And they battled back through the Malkit Zedek, through coming together and awakening to the priesthood and joining ranks arm in arm and realizing that there was a fight for the faith. And we have to realize that today Uh, as we get into this text that we are a people in the very same, the very same situation. Our culture is truly, truly being shredded right before our very eyes. I'm not sure if it was this week or if it was last week. And this is, I think, what troubles me the most. It irritates me, and I think it irritates most of you, is I cannot stand being lied to. I can't stand it. And I certainly can't stand people spinning tradition at me and setting it up as if it was truth. That's why we're all here. Because we're like, well, hang on a minute, that's not even in the Bible. Because people spun things and said it was truth when it wasn't. And I'm not sure if it was this week, like I said, or whether it was last week, when Obama came before the nation and he span and tried to make it true, and it was a total lie, that Islam was a part of this American culture. When in reality, this American culture was established in 1776 and it was a culture built on Bible. Yes, I know the Illuminati were involved, especially in the architecture of Washington, D.C., and I know the Masons, and I know it got corrupted, for sure and for certain. But there were always men that were Bible-fearing men, and in 1776, this culture was a Bible culture. And even before the end of that century, this Bible culture was at war against Islam that had no part of this culture. Because we went to war in 1796 against the armies in the Barbary Coast Wars. So for the president to absolutely lie to the nation and fabricate history irritates me. Because we will find that the truth of the Bible text, married with history, is what will set the people free from tyranny. And that's where we're at. We are a people that are going to be set free from tyranny only by the power of the Creator and through His Son, Yahushua. And we are this people. And the message is going out all across the world. People are finally waking up and saying, We can't go another four years, it's not sustainable. We cannot, our culture, just like the culture of the audience of the book of Hebrews, it it was being shredded right before them three or four years later, and the temple was destroyed in 70 of the common era, and it didn't ever, ever get rebuilt again. So we have to do something, and we have to act now, but we have to act by going forth with true biblical revelation and a framework of truth in history. So there was my small introduction. Because it's so important that as we get into the Bible text today, that we bring it forward today into this very moment so we can speak the truth out. We spent some time introducing the book of Hebrews last week. Let's talk a little bit about the author, the language, the location, the date, and the audience. I touched on it last week in depth this week, just to refresh some of your memory. In chapter 2, verse 3, we can see that the author, unlike the majority of the Christian church would believe, the author certainly is not is not the Apostle Paul. Chapter 2, verse 3, we can see that. Yet we do know from chapter 13, verse 23, that the author was, in fact, in Paul's inner circle and was familiar with Timothy and familiar with Paul's inner circle. Yet that person, chapter 2, verse 3, the author, did not hear the words of Yahusha. They did not hear the words of the master, which would count Paul out because he heard his very words on the road to Damascus. What's the language of the book of Hebrews? It is Greek. It's Greek. In fact, it's the most eloquently written Greek in the whole of the New Testament. There is no evidence that it was written in Hebrew, and there is no evidence that it's written in Aramaic, but it is got so much evidence that it is the most beautifully written Greek because it is pulling from the Septuagint texts when it is quoting the Old Testament, the Tanakh. It's pulling from the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek LXX that was translated by 70, some say 72 rabbis, about 200 before the Common Era. What was the location I believe the location of the audience, the audience, I believe, was in Judea. I believe in Judea. We looked at that last week. And the date of the writing of the book just prior to 65 of the Common Era. So really, the last five years before their culture was totally shredded. Because we can find that the major Roman persecutions, they took place around 65 of the Common Era, yet they're not mentioned in the text. So that would have me to believe it was just before the major Roman persecutions of 65 of the Common Era. The audience, chapter 2, verse 3, like the author, they were second generation Hebrew believers with many, many converts from the Levitical priesthood. The book of Acts tells us there were many that left and followed the Nazarene way. So this gives us a little bit of um, an understanding of what we're looking at as we now go into chapter 1. What we're going to see as we go into chapter 1 is a contrast between old and new revelation, both in substance and in the way it came, meaning we're going to see a difference between its medium and its means. Its medium and its means. There's a contrast in the old and new in three ways. We're going to see method, time, An agent. A contrast in three ways, method, time, and agent. The comparative better, 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 that you see so many times in the book of Hebrews, in fact 13 times within the book, is a contrast to what? The better order of things. It's talking about the priesthood and the Melchizedek. And this is where the traditional church airs, thinking it's covenant. Well, you know, we've got this new covenant, void of Torah. It's way better than that old law of Moses. And that's where they err, not understanding that the word covenant oftentimes isn't even in the text. And the King Jimmy, at least the new King Jimmy, does have the decency to italicize covenant, telling you it's not even there. So we can see that we're going to find a lot as we go into this wonderful book. Eloah, who in diverse portions and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the Avot, the fathers of Israel, by the Nevim, the prophets... He has in these, yamin achorin, in the Hebrew, meaning these last days, spoken to us in son. Now, the translators add by his son, but that's actually not in the text. It literally says, in the last days, spoken to us in son. And we'll get into that, but that's a very key point. Spoken to us in son who he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the Olamim, who being the brightness of his Tifereth, his glory, and the express image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he made, he had by himself purged our sins. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty of high. Verse 4, "...having become so much better than the heavenly Malachim." And again, right there, we have a real disservice by many of the translators. They insert being made. So have a look in your text and see in verse 4, if it says, "...having being made." If it says that, just scratch that out. "...having become," is actually in the text. "...being made," is when they're monkeying with the text." For a what? Religious doctrinal purpose. And I'll get into that a little bit more as we go through the word. So much better, he became, so much better than the heavenly Malachim, angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than them. For to which of the heavenly Malachim said he at any time, You are my son, this day have I brought you forth. And again, I will be to him an Abba, a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the first brought forth into the Olam, this world, he says, and let the heavenly Malachim, angels of Eloah, worship him. And the heavenly Malachim, he says, who makes his heavenly Malachim? His heavenly angels, spirits, ruachim, and his Avadim, his servants, a flame of fire. Verse 8, but to the sun, he says, your kese, your throne, O Eloah, is forever and ever. The Hebrew word there would be leolam vayed, a scepter of zadakha, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your malchut, your kingdom. You have loved Zedekar, you have loved righteousness, and you have hated iniquity. Therefore, Eloah, even your Eloah, has anointed you with oil and the oil of gladness above all of your fellows. And verse 10, And you, Yahweh, in the beginning, have laid the foundation, the foundation of the earth, And the shamayim, the heavens, are the works of your hands. They shall perish, but you remain, and they all shall grow old as does a garment. And like a mantle, you shall fold them up, and they shall be changed. But you are the same, and your years shall not fail. But to which of the heavenly malachim, angels, said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all serving ruachim? Are they not all serving spirits? Sent forth to serve those who shall be heirs of salvation. There's so much there. That's chapter 1. But we can see the whole thrust is the magnificence of the sun. The magnificence of the sun. Verse 1. Eloah, who at diverse portions and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the Avot, the fathers of Israel, by the Nevim. He spoke to them by the prophets. Verse 1. This is talking about the means of revelation. What's the means of revelation? In old times, Yahuwah spoke through diverse portions and diverse manners. So the source is who? The source is Yahuwah. But how did he speak to them? Through diverse portions and diverse manners. So man is the agent, but the means is twofold. Diverse portions and diverse manners. So the diversions, the diva- excuse me, diverse portions speaks of what? Yahuwah's revelation quantitatively. It came in successive portions. It wasn't poured out all at once, was it? He distributed his revelation in successive portions through each and every successive generation. He didn't just drop his whole revelation woof in the prophet Daniel's lap. He gave it out through diverse portions. Spread it out over successive generations. He gave out portions over thousands of years to his servants. Some prophets had volumes. Some prophets, just a few verses. But it was always what? It was always progressive and it was never final. It was always progressive. It was always progressive and it was never final. No prophet had the final revelation, did they? Never. And the audience now is really picking up on this. Because their culture is disappearing and they're awaiting for what? The Final green button, the final revelation that's coming to them that's never come before upon the whole nation. And there's catastrophe all around them, and they need the message of the final revelation that must come, not through Moses, who was part of the diverse portions, but now through the Malkit Zediv, which is going to be the final revelation. Now, the second way. That the Creator Elohim would speak to people would be through diverse manners. And it speaks of quality. He would speak in various ways and, and in various means. Sometimes Yahuwah would affect what? The created world. Just like he did in Egypt, didn't he? He affected the created world. He parted the Red Sea. But then at other times, he would speak through Malachim, through angels. At other times, he'd speak through the patriarchs. Then at other times, he'd speak through the prophets. His revelation always came in what? Diverse ways. Sometimes it would be dreams. Other times it would be rules. Other times it would be regulations. Sometimes it would be visions. There would be prophecies. Again, It was progressive, and it was never final. No prophet ever had the final dream, the final ordinance, the final rule. Always progressive, never final. This is huge to the audience because they knew that this was Judaism of the day. It was always progressive, never final. And something's going to change, verse 2. But he has in these yamin acharim, These very last days, spoken to to us in son. In son. Like I said, by his is added by the translator. It's not in the text. It's really driving home the very aspect of how the creator Elohim speaks to us. In son. In son. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the olamim who being the brightness of his Tifereth glory and the express image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In son, an emphasis here is on nature and quality rather than personality. You see, and that's where the church, and I'm not picking on the church, but I have to correct bad teaching so that we can go forth. It's all about the personality of Jesus. But it's not. But that's what we were taught. Well, it's my own personal relationship with the personality that I've created in the image of what I want. You see? But the emphasis in the text in son is quality, the quality, not the personality. He spoke to us through the prophets, but now he's going to speak to us through sunness through sunness and it's not going to be about this personality, but it is going to be through Priesthood and in fact high priesthood, Cohen Haggadal, authority. Authority. Not personality, but authority. The author has contrast right here in our opening verses, and it's so easy to speed through it, but the author has contrast the many prophets and the progressive revelation of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, with the Son, the oneness of the Son, and the finality of the last day's revelation through the Kohen Haggadah, the high priest. We're going to get finality, which means that you can't have some Yehu, and I say that deliberately, some of you may know where that comes from, like Joseph Smith coming along centuries later saying he got some new revelation because it is no longer progressive. The Melchizedek is final. So you're now coming against the whole book of Hebrews by saying that you got some new revelation. Joseph Smith, Muhammad. No, it's now final, secure. Today we have final revelation. It's sealed. You're secure if you stay with the final revelation. You're insecure, apostate, and going to hell, the flames, when you start taking on some new false prophet, whether it be in the 6th century or in the 18th century. You see? Seven things we're gonna see right now that trumpet Mashiach's greatness. His greatness. Number one, he is heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. The focal point is of the universe. And the Greek word here is telos, and we're familiar with that. He's the goal. Exactly, like the telescope. He is the goal, the telos, the goal of history. He is the goal of history. Yet Europe is led to believe that the sooner is the goal of history. And that's the danger that they're in right now believing that the Sunnah is the goal of history. Now, the Sunnah, of course, is the compilation of the Hadith and the Sirah, the life of Muhammad. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But people think, you know, that the Islam follows just the Quran. The Quran is only 14% of the doctrine. 84% of the doctrine is the life of Muhammad, which is the Sunnah, the Hadith and the Sirah. And that's what, is, and that's what Europe thinks now is the final revelation. And they believe that they're under that. And we've got all these liberals are now trying to backpedal like Angela Merkel because they see that they're in the quicksand. But it's too late. Is it going to be too late for our culture? It's too late for the believer's culture in Europe. Those of you that are listening in Europe, dangerous place to be. Very dangerous place to be. If you believe in Yahuwah and his son, and the high priesthood of Yeshua. Like I said, seven things that trumpet Messiah's greatness. Number one, heir of all things. Number two, through him he made the world. Everything is under his reign. Everything. Everything is subject to him. The sun operates the universe through successive ages. Number three, he's the brightness of Tifereth of Yahuwah. He is the brightness of the Creator Elohim's glory, meaning his Shekinah. His Shekinah, or his Shekinah glory. Hallelujah. See, I can do a southern accent. How's the Shekinah glory come into the tent meeting tonight? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Meaning what? He's co-essence. Co-essence of deity is manifesting glory. That's what Yochanan chapter 1 verse 1 is, right? The fourth thing of Messiah's greatness, he's the very image of his substance. He is Yahuwah's manifest character. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. The fifth thing, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And this is present tense. We haven't been abandoned. We haven't been abandoned. Europe hasn't been abandoned. We haven't been abandoned. By means of his spoken word, he is going to carry us through to the telescope, the goal, the telos. He's going to carry us through to the goal which is what? The creation, the universe, mankind, the nations, and eventually the government is going to rest on his shoulders, not on Muhammad's shoulders. But you wouldn't know that right now, would you? Number six, he made purification for sins. It's his exclusivity, cleansing high priestly work that we press into. And number seven, this is what really gives me comfort. He sat down at the right hand of a lower. It's a finished work. There's no future Yom Kippur atonement needed. There's no future Levitical priesthood needed. It's a finished work. It's a finished work. Verse four, look at what it says, "Having become so much better than the heavenly Malachim." And of course, the translators here often insert being made, which then gives due course to many of these cultic religions to say, "Oh well, Jesus was created." And then all of a sudden you've got a whole new religion that's knocking on your door every Saturday morning. You know? <laughs> Based upon these poor translations. Having become so much better than the heavenly Malachim. As he has inherited a more excellent name than them. For to which of the heavenly Malachim said he at any time. You are my son this day I have brought you forth. And again I will be to him an Abba. And he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings in the first brought forth son into this world, he says, And let all the heavenly malachim angels of Elohim worship him. And of the heavenly angels malachim, he says, Who makes his heavenly malachim ruachim? Who makes his heavenly angels spirits? And his avedim, his servants, a flame of fire. But to the sun, he says, "Your kese, your throne, O Eloah, is leolam vayed. It's forever and ever. It's a scepter of zedekah, a scepter of righteousness. Is the scepter of your malchut. You have loved zedekah, righteousness, and you have hated iniquity." And if you and I don't have that testimony, then we are drawing back. If you don't hate iniquity, and if you don't love righteousness, then I'm wondering what the hell's going on in your faith walk. And this is where I'll digress, because I, I hate iniquity, And I love righteousness, so I am going to digress because it is important for us to understand that we have a war on the culture. We have a war on the biblical faith of Abraham, Isaac, not bloody Ishmael, Isaac and Jacob. We have a war. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a great preacher who stood up And he hated iniquity and he loved righteousness and they stripped him naked and they walked him to the gallows and they hung him. And he clinged to his faith all the way in the rain, in nakedness, when he knew what he was going to be facing. Because he stood up. He was actually preaching on the east coast of America and he saw what was happening to his people in Germany and he said I cannot stay here in the comfort of the west as I see what's happening to my people so he left and he put himself in harm's way because of this very verse and it changed his life and it ended his life but I believe he has a testimony in the life after because of this very verse and this is what he said. Silence. Silence. In the face of evil. Is itself evil. Yahweh will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak. Is to speak. Not to act. Is to act. Gevurah in the Hebrew. Have courage, my son. Have courage. And people are astounded that Donald Trump would come out and say something as insane as the Liberals would say, as to, oh, we should close the borders and we shouldn't let Muslims in the country until we know what's going on. Well, that's outrageous, the Liberals say, hearkening back to the Japanese internment camps, neglecting that the Liberal Jimmy Carter did the same thing with the Iranians in the 70s. Let's not, you know, broadcast that too much. (laughs) But I would disagree with Donald I don't believe that we should do that. I don't believe that we should close the borders to the Muslims. I believe we should open the borders to the Muslims. But I believe what we should do is what the Bible calls equal weights and measures. And by history, we can learn what we should do, and this will solve the problem. We should use the Sharia law and the status of a dhimmi on Muslims themselves. The status of a dhimmi is a person that is subjugated under Sharia law. And this is what happens when the Mohammedan goes into countries all over the world and they impose Sharia law Those that do not convert to Islam are put under what's called a demi-status, subjected. Over the past 1,400 years, the Mohammedans have killed 270 million people. Buddhists, Sikhs, Jews, Sabaeans, Zoroastrians... Mandians, Hindus, and, of course, largely Christians. 1,400 years, 270 million people and numerous cultures have been wiped out. Africa, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Turkey, Lebanon. These were Christian. Russia, Christian cultures. But like I said, open the borders and let's look at something called the Treaty of Umar. The Treaty of Umar was a contract signed when Islam, under the Rashadin Caliphate, conquered Byzantine Jerusalem. When did the caliphate conquered Byzantine Jerusalem, 637 of the common era. What's really scary about that is it was only five years after Muhammad had died, and it was only 20 years after the creation of Islam. It doesn't take long. And they went in, and they subjugated Jerusalem, which was under previously Byzantine rule, they put them under Sharia law. And they put them under the Treaty of Umar. And like I said, let's open the borders. But conversely, let's see how it would look if we, in this Bible land of America... This Bible culture, 1776, of America were to hold the Mohammedan to his own Sharia standards and his own Dimi status in our Western Bible culture. Now, let's do unto the Mohammedan in our culture as the Mohammedan does in every culture that it subjects under Sharia law. So as I go through this. Don't be outraged at me. Because as I go through this. Every single thing that I mention. Is what the Mohammedan has put. Every culture. When they put them under dimi status. And it started with the Byzantine Christians in 637. And this is what they did. So what if we were to make the Muslims in America dimmies and put them under dimmi status? That is what we should do. Every one of these rules, the Christians in Jerusalem were subjected to. Every one of these rules. So don't be bad at me. Be mad at Muhammad. Muslims shall not build any new mosques. Muslims shall not call to prayer any louder than can be heard from the sidewalk from the mosque. And that goes back that the church bells in Jerusalem could not be rung any louder than what could be heard from the sidewalk. Minarets shall not exceed 15 feet And that was, they would say, that the steeples could not exceed 15 feet. Muslims shall not build houses any higher than the surrounding house of an unbeliever. And an unbeliever, myself, I'm a kafir. You're kafirs. You should be proud that you're a kafir. You're not an infidel. We are kafirs. There is more in Islam that is dedicated to the destruction of the kafir. You should own it. You are a kafir. I am a Kafir. Muslims shall not have any position or place of authority over the Kafir. Muslims will not vote or be citizens of a Kafir nation. Muslims will not serve in the military, in the police force, or have any government position. Muslims will not testify in a Kafir court, nor will they sue any Kafirs. Muslims will not give shelter in a mosque or home to any jihadi. Muslims will not teach Islam to any kafir. Muslims will not manifest Islam publicly or try to convert any kafir. They will not prevent any Mohammedan from leaving Islam if he so choose. Muslims shall not carry any weapons. Muslims shall not own any weapons. Muslims shall not display their books in the marketplace. And this is my favorite. Muslims will pay the Islamic tax of 50% of their income once a year. They will shave their heads and they will kneel before the kafir and present the tax on Muslims. And what would be the result if the foot was, the shoe was on the other foot and we did unto the Mohammedan what the Mohammedan has done unto the Christian? You would either leave the country or you would convert. Right? That's why those Christian nations are no longer Christian nations because they either left or they converted. Bring them in. This is the solution. This is the only solution. It's terribly sobering, isn't it? But history bears up what happened. And like I said, these are not my ideas. These come from the Sunnah, the life of Muhammad. You see, Muslims would either leave or they would convert. Now you know why once Christian religions, regions, excuse me, like Africa, Lebanon, Russia, Syria, and Turkey are no longer Christian because these rules were applied there. Equal weights and measures. Equal weights and measures. I must touch on this. We'll get back into the text. I don't like unicorns i don't they don't bloody exist it's a fantasy if i hear one more political leader say radical islam radical islam is a unicorn it does not exist there is no such thing it is void of fact it is a fantasy we are chasing unicorns chasing unicorns. Radical Islam is congruent with a unicorn. It's a mystical man-made fantasy that has its roots in myth and misdirection. The words of Allah and the life of Muhammad, nothing more, nothing less, is Islam. The words of Allah, the Quran, And the life of Muhammad, the Sunnah, encapsulated in the Hadith and the Sirah, is Islam. Nothing more. Nothing less. Jihad is Islam. Killing Kafir is Islam. It's not a unicorn. It's the words of Allah and the life of Muhammad. And therefore, it is the duty of every Mohammedan to perform it. Now, that's truth. Choke on it. You see, your Western likable next door MSNBC Muslim or Mohammedan is in reality an incomplete Muslim who is following the Meccan Quran. You see, people don't even realize there's two Korans. There's the Meccan Quran, where Muhammad, he wasn't very successful. In about 13 years, he got about 130 converts. He wasn't very successful. And then he went to Medina... And he waged jihad and he slaughtered the Jews in Medina and this is the second Quran, the later Quran, progressive revelation, because Islam is dualistic, it's dualistic. So these liberal, I'm not going to say it, but they are incomplete Muslims. They're talking about the Meccan verses. A complete Muslim follows the two Qurans and the Sunnah, which is the Hadith and the Sirah, the life of Muhammad. The life of Muhammad, 84% of the belief system. Whatever Muhammad did, that's what you did. How Muhammad worshipped Allah, that's how you worship Allah. 84%. What he did in Medina, that's what you do to the Kafir. And that's success. That's how, within 20 years, you can go from Medina all the way to Byzantine Jerusalem and put them under Sharia law and put them in a dhimmi status within 20 years. Yet you can screw around in, in Mecca for 13 years playing peace. And it didn't work out too well with 130 converts. And then all of a sudden, we get into rape, pillage, slavery, marrying a six-year-old, having sex with her when she's your wife, when she's nine, and all of a sudden, you've got jihad. That's, That's Muhammad for you. Why am I spending so much time on this? Because if you don't believe that New Testament believers were talking about what the Romans were doing, what the zealots were doing, and that the walls were going to come crumbling down, and their culture was going to disappear in four years, then you are deluded. Absolutely deluded, and you have no, no biblical knowledge. And I'll just come out and say that. We don't have time to play around when everything is literally falling around, falling down and crumbling before us. And people can talk, oh yeah, we can talk about the, oh, well, the pastor's in the Bible belt. Well, yeah, if it is the Bible belt, their trousers and the belt are down by their bloody ankles. They are. They are. Because they're too scared, too scared to speak out. You have loved. Now, this is where I was, right? Verse 4. I really did go off. But you know, that's just the way it is. I'm, I'm not going to apologize for my personality. You have to take it or leave it. I'm like Marmite. You either love me or you hate me. I am very salty. Who's Mahad Marmite here? If you haven't, you need to buy some. You need to put it on some white, hot, buttery toast in the morning. And you will never look back. It is, it is the best thing. Then, men, you need to kiss your wives after you've eaten that. And if they kiss you back, you know that you've got it going on. <laughs> you have loved Zedekiah. I know things are good in my house. When my wife kisses me back and I've had Marmite, or she makes me Marmite and toasts and brings it to me. It's, it's, I know that things are good, that I am in good standing. I've got to be careful because, you know, when I do like things, people, play, he did an Illuminati symbol. I have to be careful. It was a 666. Did you see the? F-? They do, don't they? It's crazy stuff. Somebody said that we had some stuff going on back here. <laughs> that we had some symbology back going on here. Yeah. The Shroud of Turin. <laughs> the Shroud of Turin. <laughs> as long as it's not the Shroud of Muhammad, I'm all right. Wouldn't want that guy living next door. Well, here's a good one. Why don't you give somebody who doesn't know anything about anything, get them to read the book of Matthew, get them to read the Sunnah, and then you decide, who would you like to live next door, Jesus or Muhammad? 100% they're going to be, oh, I'll have Jesus. You want to get fed some bread and some fish, or do you want to get your head cut off? I mean, it's not that hard, really. Look at the life, and you shall see. It's all in the fruit. You have loved Zadokar and hated iniquity. Therefore, Eloah, even your Eloah, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all of your fellows. The Ruach HaKodesh is our anointing to stand up for righteousness. Because the leaders, the leaders of the nations, they are trembling and they are buckling. They have no Ruach HaKodesh. Their trousers are down by their ankles. It's all under the weight and fear of political correctness. You want to implement some politics? Implement the politics of Islam on Islam, and you will get rid of the problems you have in America. Put all the Mohammedans in this country under the dhimmi status of Sharia law, just as they did to the Byzantines, and they will either leave this country or they will convert. That's what history tells you works. Otherwise, we're just living in fantasy land and nobody's going to make the changes that need to be made verse 10 and you Yahweh in the beginning have laid the foundation of the earth and the shamayim heavens are the works of your hands they shall perish but you remain and they shall grow old as does a garment and like a mantle you shall fold them up and they shall be changed but you are the same and your years shall not fail but to which of the heavenly Malachim angels said here any time, Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all serving Ruachim, spirit, sent forth to serve those who shall be heirs of salvation? So really this is talking about the son's superiority over the angels. The son's superiority, superiority excuse me over the angels. The author is now going to start addressing the three pillars of Judaism. I've just addressed the pillars of Islam and hopefully knocked them right out before you. But now we're going to look at the three pillars of Judaism. Angels, Moshe, and the Levitical priesthood. These were the three pillars of Judaism angelology, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. And our author is going to start addressing one, then the other, then the other. He's going to dismantle it, and then he's going to show you what you have in Yeshua. He's going to begin this chapter with angelology, the first pillar of Judaism of the day. Now, the Sadducees, or the Judaism of the period, didn't have a strongly developed angelology. But the Qumran sect, they did. They had a very strong angelology. In Qumran, they had an organized system of angelology in which the prince of light and other heavenly princes were expected to fight alongside the sons of light on the last day. Do you have an expectation that the heavenly angels will fight alongside you if you live a righteous, pious life? I truly do. I mean, we have malachim angels that will intercede for us. We literally do have guardian angels. Did you know that? That are assigned to you. How many of you call upon them daily? Maybe not. Maybe you do. We have angels assigned to us. The key is to live a holy, righteous, blameless life in a sick and twisted world. That's the key. We don't want to get caught up in transgression and iniquity because then we're not going to have the armor of righteousness on us. So in Qumran, they had this organized system of angelology, and they were constantly getting ritually immersed and living a pious, holy lifestyle because they had the full expectation that the heavenly Malachim angels would intercede for them. But the Sadducees, oh no, not them. The Sadducees, Mark Acts chapter 23, verse 8, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. All heavenly Malachim angels and shadim, demons. So the Sadducees—they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in demons. Very conveniently, because they were demons, right? Isn't that what? You, isn't that what the Master said? They were demons, and they didn't believe in angels. But the Pharisees confessed both. There was the distinction. This is why so much time right here is being dedicated to emphasizing. Yahushua's superiority over the angels. That's why so much time is being dedicated to that because he's addressing the culture. He's got Sadducees that don't believe in it at all. Then he's got Pharisees that do. He's got others that have come up from Qumran that have got a very organized structure of angelology. And now he's going to address and start dismantling this first pillar of the Judaism or those Jews that believed in the day and he's going to emphasize Yehusha's superiority over the angels the main thrust is being his deity he is greater than the angels right Now verse 4, the King Jimmy does us a great disservice, a great disservice, fancy that, and it lends credence to the cultic groups by translating, like I said, being made. But our writer doesn't use to make, but here he uses to become. It's very different. You have to make that adjustment in your scriptures. Because even though Yeshua was cloaked in humanity, yet not from humanity's origins, dust, he was still better than the heavenly Malachim angels. And when he walked upon the earth, he did become a little lower than the heavenly angels. Chapter 2, verse 9. Yet in his deity, he was always superior to them. When he returned to the Shamaim, when he returned to the heavens in resurrection, he received a more excellent name, a name we don't even know. Revelation chapter 19 verse 12 and Philippians 2.9. We're going to now see our author really thrust this home because he's going to now, home in on the greatness of the sun, the greatness of the sun, and he's going to confirm it sevenfold in the Tanakh. The Tanakh, many of you know, but some of our audience won't, it's an acronym for the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, which means the Torah the prophets, and the writings, Tanakh, what we commonly call the Old Testament. It's an acronym for Torah, Neviim, and Ketuvim. So now we're going to find seven quotations in chapter 1, and they're going to demonstrate the Son's superiority over the heavenly angels. And this is where we'll finish up. The first quotation is in the first half of verse 5. And the quotation is from Tehillim, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Now, (coughs) to truly appreciate Psalm 2 in relation to Yahushua, you really do need to read the opening verses in the Septuagint because you're going to see that this really points to Christ. And I use that Greek term deliberately. Because Christ is a Greek term. Look what it says in Psalm chapter 2. Wherefore did the heathen rage and the nations imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his Christ. This is from the Septuagint, Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 saying, let us break through their bonds and cast away their yoke from us. So the son, we can find from this text, he has a special what? A positional relationship with the father. A special positional relationship with the father. A relationship that gives him rights. It's a relationship that gives him privileges. And it is privileges regarding the sanctuary, the sacrifice, and the priesthood. Three things. Gives him privileges to the sanctuary, the sacrifice, and the priesthood, which some find today very hard to comprehend. He is begotten. This isn't talking about birth or origin, as some of the cultic groups would have it apply, but it talks about his authority as the firstborn. And Galatians 4 speaks about that. Fancy that, huh? He is declared the son of Elohim, which is an individual term that is unique because angels are collectively called sons of Elohim, but never individually. He is the son of Elohim, whereas angels are called sons of Elohim. But we've got this very unique term that he's calling out because remember, he's attacking, if you will, or dismantling better one of the pillars of Judaism, angeology. Now, like I said earlier, I can't stand when people lie to me. I can't stand it when people try and deceive me, especially if it's political and religious. That really gets me. That really does. I mean, I, I would just be crass right now and just say it pisses me can I say that? I did. It's, it's a real word. Yeah. Look what Judaism hides. Look what Judaism deliberately hides in its commentary. You're gonna, this is just going to, you're going to, it's just crazy. Judaism deliberately hides this. This is their commentary on Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And this is from the Midrash Tehillim. Are you ready for this? Rabbi Chuna says in the name of Rabbi Acha, the suffering are divided into three parts, one for David and the fathers, one for our own generation, and one for King Messiah. As it is written, he is wounded for our transgressions. And when the hour comes, the Holy One, blessed be He, says to them, I must create Him a new creation. As it is said, today I have begotten Him. The implication here seems to be that Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 refers to a time when Messiah, after suffering and death, is brought back to the realm of the living. You mean Judaism interpreted, is there such a word, Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, that the Messiah is going to die after suffering he's going to be brought back to life. But Judaism would have you today believe that you're insane by talking about the Messiah rose from the dead. Well, that's, that's that's not in the Tanakh. Oh, well, it's in your commentaries that you've hidden from people for over two millennia, right there. You see, I can't stand that type of stuff. Their own rabbis believed that the Messiah would suffer and he would die and then after death he would be brought back to life based upon Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, their commentaries in the Midrash. There you have it. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it? I mean, it's just wild, isn't it? It's a slap in the face. Right there. Wild stuff. Do I need to calm down, honey? A little bit, okay. She gives me the looks. I've been taking this super male vitality. This isn't an advert or anything, but it is some good stuff. I am telling you. Now my wife's blushing, but it is good stuff. I feel good. I just—I had two big vials right before I came. It's got lots of testosterone in it. I mean, it's seriously good stuff. I'm taking that with some nascent iodine and lots of tea. She gets nervous. I brought home two bottles the other night. It's like. She's leaving. All right. Let's get back to where we were. (laughs) I'm embarrassing myself. Seven quotations from the Tanakh, proving the sun's superiority over the angels. The second quotation is in the latter half of verse 5. And it is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint, you'd be looking in the Septuagint, you'd be like, where is is Second Samuel in the Septuagint? It has disappeared. Have any of you done that? Be honest. I'm going to be honest. I've done that. When I first started looking in the Septuagint, I'd be looking for Second Samuel. Somebody would say, oh, yeah, you've got to read 2 Samuel in the Septuagint. You'd be like, well, mine doesn't have it in there. What's up with that? was because they got 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 3rd Kings, and 4th Kings. That's what they call it, you see? Yeah, so you've got to go, well, which kings is it? Is it 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 3rd Kings, or 4th Kings? Anyway, you go there and you find it, and it's a Davidic, Malkitzetic term. And it is... Talking about the fulfiller, 2 Samuel seven fourteen. It's talking about the fulfiller of the covenant that David was positionally unable to bring in. He was not able to bring this about because of what? His many wars and his blood-stained life. He was not able to bring in what Yeshua brings in. Because David had many wars with the Philistines and he had a blood-stained life. A blood-stained life. King David's office clashed with the priestly office, yet it was impossible for him to bring in the covenant. And we find in Psalm 110, we see the priestly and the kingly duties in harmony, don't we? In Psalm 110. Yet at times, with David, we do catch glimpses of harmony within his life. Remember when he was being pursued by Saul? He was permitted to eat the showbread that had been set out by the priests. So we can see a glimpse of that priestly and kingly harmony. Yet he was never able to really bring it in because of the bloodstained life. But we do see those glimpses. That's what the author is referring back to. David couldn't bring it in. Yes, you have glimpses of harmony between kingship and priesthood. But Yahushua he brought it in. He brings it in right now to us, your very audience. He's bringing in this wonderful Davidic fulfillment. We can, we can see, of course, many people will say, well, remember David when he, 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 uh, he danced? He danced and, and uh, Michael saw him and he tore off his garments. That was very inappropriate very inappropriate. But no, in fact, what it was, it was very appropriate because he was worshipping Yahweh and he had just got back from slaughtering the Philistines and his garments were soiled with blood. So he stripped off his garments. He had his linen tunic on, his high priestly tunic. In fact, it talks about the tunic of the priest. And he danced before Yahweh because he wanted to remove the soiled bloody garments and be presentable before the Creator. Yet he was mocked for that, and many people didn't understand that. They didn't understand that. He actually stripped down to his linen ephod so he could be set apart, panayim, before Yahweh. Torah states that only the sons of Aaron could minister what? Panaim before the tabernacle of Yahweh, And the other tribal members who presumed to come Panaim before the face of Yahweh were put to death. Numbers chapter 3 verse 10. So how was it that David was able to come right before the face of the creator Elohim? David wore a linen ephod. 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 14. That's priestly. Yahweh said of his faithful priest that he would build him a sure house. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. And Yahweh said that David's house would be established forever. That is a sure house, isn't it? So David then functions in a way that only a priest can in fact function. He sits Panayim before Yahweh, before the tabernacle, which only a priest could do, otherwise you're slaughtered. He wears the ephod of a priest, yet he's a king. He sits before Yahweh, he talks to Yahweh, and he gives thanks to Yahweh. You see that in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, verse 18. And all of this in front of the ark. But only a priest can do this. So, David was a Malki Cohen. He was a king priest. Psalm 110. This is, as I've spoken in times past, the Elishava Aaronic genealogical connection from Judah and Levi. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 23. Shemot 6, verse 23. And Aaron took Elishava daughter of Aminadav, and she was the sister of who? Nakshon. She was the sister of Nakshon as a wife, and she bore him Nadav and Avihu, Eliezer and Itamar. But now you have to go to bar Numbers chapter 1, verse 3, the numbering of the tribes, and you find from the tribe of Judah... Nakshon, the son of Aminadav. So the Aaronic priesthood is birthed out of the co mingling of the tribe of Judah and Levi from its very inception. From its very inception. The mother of the Aaronic priesthood. We can see this co mingling of the line of Judah and Levi, king and priest. Comingled from its very inception, the House of Judah and the House of Levi. We do know David's sons were called what? What were his sons called? They were called chief priests. Second Cham- Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, the Hebrew word there is Cohen. Cohen. Acts fifteen is all about what? Raising up the Malchit Zedek, the fallen tabernacle of king and priest. Being a member of his of this kingly priestly line was the key to how David was able to sit before Yahuwah. And is the key to how we can sit before him too. As priests, because of the sun and after the order of Malkit we can sit before Yahweh. In K4, in Qumran, the text is 4Q. Floraliglium. I don't know how you pronounce that. Floraliglium. And it has actually the text of 2 Samuel 7.14. It anticipates this very revelation that we're talking about right now. I love it when you go back to the Qumran text and they anticipate Yeshua. They anticipate the Malkit Zedek. They anticipate the very things that we're talking about today. There's notes on the Malkit Zedek. And the Malkit Zedek will be an expounder of the Torah. What does that mean? He will interpret how you're truly to live the Torah in a covenant reality. I believe that our author either was or closely associated with those in Qumran because he was familiar with that work. Let's look at the third thing we see now in verse 6. It's a quotation. We're looking at seven quotations from the Tanakh. The third is in verse 6, and it comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, and from Psalm 97, verse 7 in the Septuagint. The emphasis is that even the angels, even the heavenly angels, they will worship the Son. He is deity and they are not. He is deity and they are not. Qumran 4QDTQ has a longer variation of Deuteronomy 32 verse 43 that was only known to exist in the LXX version. Do you realize that there were 33 copies of Deuteronomy amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls and 30 of them were actually found at Qumran? Let's read Deuteronomy 32 verse 43 from the Septuagint text and just pick up on this. Rejoice ye heavens with him and let all the angels of God worship him. Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people and let all the sons of God strengthen themselves in him for he will avenge the blood of his sons, and he will render vengeance and recompense justice to his enemies, and will reward them that hate him, and the Lord shall purge the land of his people. That says that the nation that rejects the son will be purged from the land. And it happened five years after the author communicated this text to his very audience. Very prophetic indeed. The fourth quotation from the Tanakh is in verse 7, and it comes to us from Psalm chapter 104, verse 4. The angels are servants, and they are transitionary. The Son, well, he is the eternal master to which the angels serve in holy devotion. Holy the superiority of the sun. We can really see this thrust. The fifth quotation from the Tanakh is in verses 8 and 9. And it comes from Psalm 45, verse 7 and 8. Yahushua is directly identified as deity by the author of Hebrews. Yahuwah addresses the Son as what? Look at it. O Elohim, this is a royal wedding psalm celebrating the high priest's wedding to his companions, the priesthood, you and I. The son is to have an eternal throne, a righteous reign, because he loves righteousness and he hates iniquity. The son is highly exalted, as we should love righteousness and hate iniquity because we want to exalt the son. The sixth quotation comes in verse 10 and 12, and it comes from Psalm 102, verse 25, or in the Septuagint, it's numbered differently. It is Psalm 101, verse 26. Yahusha is superior in his existence. He is the creator. He is sovereign. He is unchangeable. Fancy that. He is an eternal. He's eternal. Unlike the universe that will one day roll up and be discarded like an old garment. Just like an old rag. We see that in Revelation chapter 6 verse 14. In 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. And now we get the final quotation. The seventh quotation from the Tanakh. Verse 13 is quoted. Now we see Psalm 110 verse 1. In the Septuagint it's actually numbered Psalm 109. It was quoted by Yahushua before Caiaphas in Matthew chapter 26, verse 62. Of course, Caiaphas, as we know, he invokes the law of the trespass offering in Leviticus 5. And Yahushua had to answer, did he not? He had to answer or he would have been violating the Torah and a sinner and he would have been unable to be the Redeemer. Matthew chapter 26, verse 62. And the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Yahushua kept silent. And the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living Elohim. He now puts him under the trespass offering oath of Leviticus 5. And that oath says that if you know something to be true, and you're put under that oath, you have to vocalize it, otherwise you are a sinner. So that's why Yeshua says, it is not. It is as, as you say... But I say it. He can't just have Caiaphas testify. He has to utter it out of his mouth that he is, in fact, the Son of Man. And he has to utter that because he's been put under the trespass offering. And at that point, Caiaphas, who's wearing the double neck garment, because he's a redneck. No, he's not. Sorry, that's not in the text. Um, he's wearing the double neck priestly garment. He rips the garment Therefore, he nullifies his priesthood. Yeshua is blameless and shouldn't be killed. But in fact, Caiaphas is now the one that should be killed, according to the Torah. You've got no one that year able to preside over the Passover sacrifice, except for the high priest under the order of Melchizedek presides over his own living sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? Right there and then, Caiaphas nullifies his priesthood. You have no Levitical priesthood able to officiate over what Yeshua is about to do. Verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Yahushua kept silent. And the Kohen HaGadol, the high priest, answered and said to him, I put you under oath of the living Elohim. Tell us if you are the Mashiach, the son of Eloah. And Yahushua said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of Yahuwah. Now, in the New King James Version, it says the power. In the Septuagint, it is Yahweh and the coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, Caiaphas, again, as we know, he nullifies his priesthood. He becomes guilty of death, Leviticus 10, verse 6. And this quotation emphasizes the completed work of enthronement glory in the equality with Elohim that Yahushua is what? He's deity. He's deity. Psalm 110, verse 5, in the Septuagint, Yahweh qualifies, verse 1, as Yahweh sitting at the right hand of Yahweh. It's amazing. Now, in conclusion and in comparison, we see that the angels are still what? Today? They are still very busy ministering ruachim. They're ministering spirits. Ministering ruachim. I mean, do you realize that angels observe you? They observe you. They observe what you say. They see how fashionable or unfashionable your dress is. They do. You think I'm joking. It, they're like, they want to know, what, what are you wearing? 1 Corinthians 11. They know how you suffer. They even carry you to the grave. They are ministering malachim, angels. Ephesians 5.6, 1 Corinthians 4.9. Like I said, 1 Corinthians 11 and Luke 16, verse 22. They are servants of those that inherit salvation. Servants, not as slaves, but as excited volunteers. They are excited. They are volunteering to serve you that inherit salvation. Not as servants, but as excited. They can't wait to serve you. Use them. They cannot wait to serve you. They are excited volunteers of religious devotion to you. They're guardians. Angels assigned specifically to you and I. Matthew 18.10, Psalm 91 verse 11. They are likened to field medics in military service. They really are. They are likened to Field medics in military service. Think about that. What? I mean, field medics, why? Why? Why are they likened to field medics in military service? Because the bomb of the golden calf went off, blew the limbs off of Israel, the heavenly malachim angels came like field medics, and attach the prosthesis of the book of the law to Israels that they were then under the authority of the book of the law, hobbling along with a prosthetic limb until Yeshua comes along and he brings in the book of the covenant and they are now under his kingly, priestly lineage and Malkitsetic realm and now you still have the assistance of field medics, but you no longer have a prosthesis. You have a regrown limb from the master physician. That's amazing stuff, isn't it? They were field medics that stopped the bleeding and they attached the prosthesis of the book of the law. The added prostheme, which is where we get the word Prosthesis, the Greek word prosthome, the added law of Galatians chapter four, verse ten and Galatians four, eighteen. It's amazing stuff. And that's just chapter one. I'm exhausted. I'm gonna have some of my more super male vitality Tamara. Woohoo! Questions, comments, sorry, calm down. Oh, microphone! It's a good day today. I had a great Shabbat. I really did. I love Shabbat. I love it. I had challah bread for dinner last night. I had challah bread for breakfast this morning. Hala, hala, hallelujah! <laughs> Questions up front. Oh, back here. Aaron from the Aaronic priesthood. How are you today? <laughs>
1: Uh, so my understanding is that the, uh, the Hebrews, or the, the audience there in Hebrews, is a culture of Aramaic-speaking people, is what I understand from history. So why would this person, if not Paul, write to them in Greek?
0: I, From my research, I haven't found any evidence that they were an Aramaic-speaking culture. I found that they were Hellenistic Jewish culture, very, very stooped in in the um, Alexandrian texts, and that's why I believe it was written in the Greek primary to them. But I'm I'm open if you've got some, some research. I mean, I know people have said that, but I haven't found any evidence of it being written in Aramaic or Hebrew. And the Greek text is very different than any other book in the New Testament that it lends me to believe that it truly was written in the Greek because it is really emphasizing the Hellenistic texts of Alexandria using the Septuagint. But um, that's my research so far. Yes. Yes.
1: This is going back to when you were talking about how people should use equal weights and measures and impose the same law on Islam. Um, What about the instant inclination to think, don't repay evil with evil? Because I think that's what the common person does, is they think well, we can't do that to people. We're Christian. We don't, we don't do that kind of a thing. You know? And so what do you suggest that the common person do? Do you get involved in politics? And
0: Well, I mean, I suggest the common person read the Sunnah and look at the, look at the life of Muhammad and then read the life of um, Yahushua and choose. And by their fruits, you'll know them. You'll see one of mayhem, destruction, and death, and you'll see one of a superior... Um, majestic, Malkit Zedek bringing healing, the master physician, grace, love, and true righteousness through keeping royal commandments. I mean, there's such a, a different legacy with, 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 with our faith. But, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people will say things that are based in fantasy, you know.
1: So, yes. Yes, uh, we have several comments. Um, We do have three requests to know the brand of the Vitality Mix that you are using. (laughs) Yes! Including our best friend Wally. He's interested as well. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) It's good stuff, Wally. (laughs) Um, Also, we do have some questions. And the first one is, um, is it correct that we will judge our assigned angels based on their work to us? I don't know. I like the sound of that, though. But I don't know. I'd like a verse supporting that. would okay. be good. We also have a comment that you were invited by the Lakota tribes, uh, Standing Rock and Cheyenne River Sioux tribes, and they would like to talk to you about that offline. Wonderful, wonderful. Amazing With, stuff. Is there a book of Dead Sea Scrolls that you would recommend? Yes, but I cannot recall it. It is at home. I will
0: find out and let you know. We'll
1: post that on Facebook.
0: Yes, it could actually be on our website under the books that I use. I need to update that because there's lots more that I've been reading. That was another question. Yes. Was
1: It's the Breton Septuagint, is that correct? Yes, yes,
0: exactly, yes, yes. The Brenton Septuagint, I love
1: that one. And I think that was the last comment.
0: Oh, okay. No cabbage. Good. Good stuff. Well, what a blessing. I mean, I really am just so blessed to be able to be in the Word, be with the brethren, and be living in these days. I know it seems insane, but we are a privileged people. I'm just so thankful we have the eyes to see and that we can look back into the past and bring it right into our very presence so we can be able to discern the very future steps that we take. So, Abba Yahweh, we do thank you, Yahweh our Elohim, for your great magnificence and your Son, Yahusha HaMashiach. We pray, Abba, that you would truly draw us close to you. Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, merciful, gracious, and long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, who extends mercy to thousands, forgiver of iniquity, transgression, and sin, who by no means clears the guilty, but visits the sins of the avolt upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Baruch, haba Habashem, Yahuwah. Amen? Amen. Thank you and be blessed. Stick around.